Hi, and welcome to Fifth in Mission. I'm Dominic Fracasa, a staff writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Art, like just about everything else in the Bay Area, has been upended by the COVID-19 pandemic. Regional artists were already struggling before COVID-19 under the pressures of the area's outrageous living costs, vanishing galleries and art spaces, and a culture that just undervalues their work. Like so many, the virus has freighted their futures with more uncertainty. But there appears to be a silver lining. Combined with the energy of ongoing civil rights protests, people from all corners of the artistic community are seizing opportunities to move ahead with ambitious ideas and projects that have the potential to remake art in the Bay Area. Writer Samantha Nobles Block has written about that very thing for the Chronicles Through Line section, and she joins us now. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Dominic. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. So it's an old cliche, but it does seem to ring true here that necessity is the mother of invention, right? There's traditional institutions that are being turned inside out right now in the arts community, and it seems like it could be for the better in a lot of ways. So break it down for us. What's happening with the Bay Area's art community right now? So it's a tumultuous time. It's also an incredibly exciting time. We're seeing... On the tumultuous end, we're seeing job cuts, staff cuts at major institutions. We're seeing the expected upheaval that you would see in any sector with the job losses. Um, But we're also seeing artists, as always, as they have done throughout history, leading the way with really exciting and creative solutions that if they gain traction and spread, could have the potential to really remake how we connect with the arts and how um, artists can make a living. So uh, just to give you some examples, um, we're seeing people who are piloting new ideas. For example, dancer Mathilde Frusti is looking at a new way to help dancers make a living. She's working on an online venue and platform. Uh, we're seeing ins- you know, ideas like Uh, you know, repurposing some of the legal structures that have been traditionally used by institutions like the Bohemian Club and the Elks Lodge, you know, these groups that have been perhaps a little bit exclusionary, and then repurposing them for the arts as ways to create a community, as ways to create um, accessible spaces. Um, So there's a lot of really exciting things going on right now in that sector. Oh, that's really fascinating. I, I have to admit, when I started reading your piece, uh, I, I expect to be, you know, bummed out like most of the the news, bummed out by it, by, by like a lot of the stories that we're reading right now. But it does seem like that there are that artists, like you said, are responding and have have really taken taken this moment to sort of remake kind of what they're all about. I, I wonder though, when it comes to the the work themselves, how are artists responding to this this historic moment? Historic for a, a number of reasons. Are you when you talk to artists? And when you view kind of what they're up to, are there any sorts of themes emerging? Um, Speaking about the work itself. Mm -hmm. I am really excited by all the political art that is emerging out of this protest movement. Artists um, from all areas of our region and um, in all mediums are finding new ways to to support and energize the protest movement through their artwork. You have artists like uh, Lucia Gonzalez Ipolita and the uh, free art poster entity that she founded. 
they're just the group is distributing artwork to protesters to use in protest. Um, and that's, I think, a really powerful way to create energy and to create awareness. You know, the um, there's a series called uh, Take Care Of that lists all the marginalized communities that we uh, as society should be aware of. And this was a series that came out of uh, President Trump's election in 2016, but it's gained new energy now. And you'll see that those lists popping up in windows, on sweatshirts, on protest signs. It's incredibly exciting to see how artists are responding to this energy of this moment and then repurposing it in the art in a way that then creates a feedback loop of energy with the rest of society. I think it would be really instructive to just take a second to rewind the clock a little bit and and talk about the state of the Bay Area's arts community prior to the pandemic. I mean, things, you know, as, as we sort of mentioned at the top of the show, whether it's the cost of living or disappearing, you know, avenues for artists to kind of show and sell their work, you know, things were... Things weren't all of that rosy prior to the pandemic. So I, I wonder, you know, it, as we look at how things have shifted and where they are right now, I wonder if you could take us back a couple of months, if uh, if anyone can remember that, what that was like <laughs> still, and, and, and talk about where things were before the pandemic hit. I just think that'd be helpful to understand how we got to where we are now. Mm-hmm. It does feel like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? The way that the Bay Area has been evolving um, prior to the pandemic, which has pushed us to a tipping point in many ways. We, as as a region, I'm actually going to zoom the lens back even further than a couple months. As a region, we have historically been incredibly vibrant from an artistic and creative perspective. Um, there's an arts vibrancy index that's created by uh, Southern Mes- Methodist University that measures metros across the country for their vibrancy of their creative communities. San Francisco historically has always ranked near the top. Um, We were the center of, you know, the epicenter of the early street art movements or one of the epicenters of the early street art movements in the 80s and 90s. Um, We've had, you know, incredible artistic energy that's come out of this region for forever. What's happened starting with the dot-com boom and since then is we've been slowly and steadily losing our creative infrastructure And when I say creative infrastructure, I mean all the things that our creative communities need to survive and thrive. So, for example, if you're an artist and you want to have a career path and make a living, you need studio space. You need galleries that are entry level and mid-level, not just top tier. If you're a dancer, you need, again, studio space. You need uh, a, a vibrant community around you that hires dancers. If you're a musician... Uh, and you, for example, if you're a hip-hop artist, you need record labels, you need recording studios. We've steadily been losing all of those things as a result of this sort of economically overheated environment that has sort of transformed into an environment that's somewhat economically hostile. Um, And so before the pandemic, we were incredibly creatively vibrant, but had lost a lot of the infrastructure that we needed to make this a sustainable place for artists to make a living. Um, A great example of that, uh, the Minnesota Street Project that opened a little, I think a little over four years ago. When they opened, they had 300 artists apply for 30 studio studio spaces, uh, which is an indicator of how badly needed that kind of infrastructure is. Now with the pandemic, it sounds so 
counterintuitive to say, but it's also almost as if new opportunities are opening up for new spaces, new ways of thinking about the streets as venues for the arts and artists. We're seeing it on the in the way that artists have been repurposing the boarded up windows um, of the shop fronts that have closed down be- temporarily because of the p- pandemic. We're seeing it in, I'm hoping we will see more of it in access to space. We're seeing it in t- in terms of artists really ha- taking this moment to think about new ways to support their communities. And it's really exciting from that perspective. And I know, again, it sounds so counterintuitive to say that at this moment in time when everything feels so dark, but there's some really exciting energy coming out of this that I'm hopeful could help restore some of that lost creative infrastructure that we need so badly. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back on Fifth and Mission to talk more with writer Samantha Noble's block. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. So, Samantha, I want to read a quote from your story that really struck me and, and I think does does kind of capture um, a, a good chunk of, of what your piece is about. This is from Yerba Buena's Center for the Arts CEO, Deborah Cullinan. And she mm-hmm. says, we're disconnecting art from the financial system that ignores the value of, of, our, of what our artistic communities bring. What did she mean by that exactly? So... This is a really perfect indicator of the way in which, as a culture, we've sort of siloed arts and artists into uh, a silo that we perceive as almost a leisure activity or something that is only done uh, or accessed by people who are affluent. But what Deborah was touching on, uh, and of course, as with any quote, there's so much more behind that thought from her, is that... Artists bring so much more value to our communities uh, that isn't recognized by the current financial structures. And by the current financial structures, I mean the collectors or patrons who there and there are these collectors and patrons who view art only in the context of its financial value. What Yerba Buena Center for the Arts is doing. Uh, which is really interesting and fascinating, is they are disconnecting from that model, that paradigm, and looking at ways that artists can have real measurable impact in their communities through their art. So, for example, Deborah mentioned uh, the uh, the impact of art on healthcare outcomes. There's data that shows that either making art or being surrounded by art can have positive impacts on healthcare outcomes. How can we, how she's saying, how can we connect with the healthcare system and start to assign some of that value to art and therefore pay artists for that value that they're creating? She, uh, through their Culture Bank initiative, she and Penelope Douglas are looking at ways to invest in artists who are essentially creating enterprises in their local communities. So for example, an artist from their first cohort created a catering company where immigrant and refugee women shared stories along with the food as a way of raising awareness around, about these issues. Um, all, so when you dig into that quote, it's really about finding all the creative ways 
and, and I use that word very deliberately, all the creative ways that artists can impact our culture, our society, our communities that go beyond just the painting that hangs in a gallery. Speaking of galleries, actually, um, one thing I was really struck by in your piece was the sort of um, description about virtual galleries. You, you write about how it has almost the potential to democratize how artists show and, and sell their work. So tell us about where, where those are at. I mean, has they, have they come up just as a result of the pandemic or are they becoming a bit more you know, mainstreamed or accepted because of the pandemic? Uh, how did those come about exactly? So I think... Since technology made the option available to us, the creative community has been experimenting with ways to bring art and artistic experiences to people through that medium. The pandemic has, of course, accelerated that because all of our traditional venues for connecting with the art world are temporarily unavailable to us. And some may be permanently. We don't know yet. Um, and so the process of... I think it has really energized this process of looking at creative new ways to to create access to the arts through technology and through virtual venues. So, for example, um, these efforts are still very much in their infancy, and there's not one that I can point to, but there are people in the VR and AR world who are looking at ways to create experiences around the arts. And this was going on before the pandemic. Um, but I think that the pandemic has really accelerated that. And it's a really exciting evolution, in part because, again, back to the silos concept, the arts are often thought of as this rarefied era. You go to you know, the, a walled garden that is a museum, and you experience the art for a moment, and then you go home. Or you go to a performance. Um, and finding new ways to through technology to make those available to more people is, and, and and this is a very important point, and help artists get paid for that work is a really exciting progression that I think the pandemic has accelerated. And you're seeing a lot of people in the technology world work on different aspects of that experience now. I, I, the one drawback is I think it's hard to replicate, for example, the energy of an in-person theater experience, um, a theater uh professor I spoke to for this article who has worked in some of that technology arena is experimenting now with online uh, performances of Shakespeare. But, you know, she says you can't replicate the pheromones you get when you're in a group of people in a theater. So there is some mm -hmm. loss there, but technology is work is, you know, giving us new ways to access art and performance that we wouldn't have otherwise. So um, it'll all be really excited to see where that goes as a result of the pandemic. What are the next couple of months going to teach us about where the arts are moving in the Bay Area as a result of this changing world? Like, what are, what are, what are the sort of signals and signposts that you're going to be watching for to see whether we're kind of headed toward, you know, headed toward this new exciting place where that, that, that's being kind of created right in front of us by the arts community and people seizing on opportunities that they've had to make themselves or that have kind of prevent, uh, presented themselves as a result of the pandemic. But what are the things that you're going to be watching for that, uh, that the rest of the city ought to be paying attention to? I'm going to be watching the streets. I'm hoping to see the streets really repurposed for artistic endeavors. I think that there's a huge amount of potential there that we have never really accessed. Um, 
the uh, Gina Beard, who is, uh, I think, a, an amazing philosopher in addition to being the woman who revitalized the lab, a performing, performing arts space here in San Francisco, um, says that the streets are an area that we could permanently create as performance spaces, as venues. And could we use that method to make the arts more accessible and to uh, bring people into that conversation in a way that they aren't now? I'll be excited to see how that evolves. I'm also excited to see how institutions, and I'm talking about our anchor institutions like the San Francisco MoMA, um, the Oakland uh, Museum, uh, Museum for the Arts, how they respond to this challenge. Um, I'm, I'm already excited about some of the programming that the Oakland Museum already had in process even before the pandemic. They were uh, in the process of tearing down a wall that had stood between Lake Merritt and the museum's gardens and making that accessible to all the people and the energy from Lake Merritt. Uh, when I interviewed uh, Rene de Guzman, he's their senior curator of art, he told me that one of their measures of success will be, do the runners from Lake Merritt begin to use the gardens and the museum as part of their route? Do, do they, are we connecting with the community through in that way such that the museum becomes part of their everyday life? And I'm also excited to see how this protest movement influences the uh, programming that we're seeing coming out of our anchor institutions. Um, again, at the Oakland Museum, I know that they'll be having an exhibit coming up in 2021, uh, a collaboration with Angela Davis around the protest art from the Black Power Movement of the 1960s and 70s. So I think that watching to see how institutions respond and how what new ways they find to create accessible accessible experiences and really connect with communities and where are those walls starting to break down. I'm really excited to see that. And then finally, I'm hopeful that we'll start to see some new ways for artists to make a living because that's always the challenge here in the Bay Area or anywhere that, you know, coming out of these protests and seeing how the protest art has influenced and energized us all people will perhaps have a bit more appreciation uh, and understanding of what it takes for a cultural worker to make a living here in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Well, Samantha, thank you so much for your work and thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Enjoy the conversation. Our thanks again to writer Samantha Nobles Block for being with us today. And thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Dominic Fercasa. We'll see you next time.